Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. And on this episode of the Extra Environmentalist, we're talking with Ozzy Zinner, the author of Green Illusions, The Dirty Secrets of Clean Energy and the Future of Environmentalism. Justin, are you excited as I am? Yeah, a lot of my working experiences have been involved in the energy sector as well as related to renewable energy and and my academic work has been related to renewable energy and so that's why I'm very excited to have Ozzy on the show to, to talk about his research into renewable energy technologies and some of the impacts and the ecological footprint of renewable energy technologies. We talked with Ozzy all about different kinds of green energy and it's really interesting stuff. I can't wait to let you guys hear what he has to say. Yeah. Without any further ado, let's jump right into the episode and listen to Ozzy Zenner talk about green illusions. Ozzy Zaner, you're a visiting scholar at the University of California, Berkeley, a philanthropy consultant. And today we're here to talk about your new book, Green Illusions, The Dirty Secrets of Clean Energy and the Future of Environmentalism. Hi, it's nice to be on the show. Ozzy, you're a philanthropy consultant. What does that mean? And how often do you find that the best intentions go awry? <laughs> That's a really good question, actually, because they do go awry quite a bit, it seems. To answer your first question about what a philanthropy consultant does, it varies from project to project. But these days, most of what I do is involved in doing some research, uh, but mostly sitting in on strategic meetings when philanthropists are trying to figure out what are they going to do with their money? How are they going to direct the funding? And so I spend time working with them and trying to figure out where are the best opportunities for philanthropists to spend money. But at the same time, philanthropy is kind of an interesting field. And as a consultant, I kind of have feet in two different conceptual pools. I have one foot in the pool of, of trying to work with philanthropists. And at the same time, I kind of think there's something about philanthropy that is a little bit of a failure in itself. It's probably better to imagine a world or the type of world that we would like to have where philanthropy is not necessary, because philanthropy is a way of kind of building power structures that are not democratically based. We have a small group of people deciding how funds should be allocated. And so, you know, I'm kind of aware of both sides of that. And sometimes you get into trouble when you're dealing with those sorts of issues. But uh, I try to kind of keep a foot in both pools and, and try to help out where I can, but also kind of keep a critical mindset on how the whole field is focused. Do you tell that to donors? Do you say, well, actually, you know, we should build a world where philanthropy isn't necessary? 
Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's surprising how many people are actually in favor of that because everyone's kind of in this situation where, especially people that have built up a fortune, like private donors, you probably find a little bit more of a variance in how many you know, their political ideologies will affect very greatly how they feel about philanthropy. But a lot of organizations are, are open to that kind of mindset and open to that kind of critique. And it's nothing new in the world of philanthropy. Lots of people are familiar with that critique, especially with the emergence of the Occupy movement. They've gotten a little bit more criticism now because a lot of them were one percenters. And so I think that's done a lot to engage with the broader environmental and, and economic impacts of the kind of work that philanthropists do, can do, shouldn't do. So I'm glad it's part of the conversation. And, and I think it should be a larger part. Do you think the Occupy movement has added to the philanthropy movement or has it taken away from it? Has it drawn more attention to people giving or has it made people more reticent to give? Oh, you know, I don't know if there is any data on this, and, and we probably wouldn't know now. It would probably have to wait a little while because the reporting on philanthropy comes out annually, and then it takes a while for that data to be compiled. And so I would say in another couple of years, we'll probably have good information on what the effect of Occupy has been. But it has certainly created a shift in the mindset of a lot of people on economic injustices. And the importance of those in not just environmental work, but in all spheres of life. And so, you know, there's definitely been a shift. It's definitely affecting philanthropy. Whether or not it's added more philanthropists or taken away from philanthropy, I, I don't really know if there's been a big difference there. But we'll know in a couple of years, probably. Tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this kind of stuff, how you landed at University of California, Berkeley, and what it's like to be a visiting scholar there. I've been interested in energy issues for a long time, and I actually used to be an architect. And you know, when you're an architect, you don't get to do what you want to do. I, I always thought going to school that architecture would be great and could build all these really cool buildings, but you have clients and you have to end up building what they want. So one of the things that clients always wanted was alternative energy. And it, I was in urban areas and primarily in solar cells was a really big one. And so as I started looking more into solar energy and solar cells, I realized that there was a lot of drawbacks and limitations to the technology that a lot of people didn't really understand. I didn't understand. I mean, I, I was a proponent of solar cells at the time as well. So that was kind of how I got into this research. And, and now I don't do any design work anymore. I only do research work. And I find it to be a lot of fun, although I kind of missed the design side at times. So that kind of brought me into a field of research where I started working on the book and, and working on academic work. And the University of California, Berkeley has been a great place to be. I've been there for a couple of years now. And mostly what I do, I give a talk recently at Berkeley and I'm involved a little bit with some projects that go on on campus. But primarily it's one of those positions that has a lot of benefits and not a lot of obligations. So it works out well for me. <laughs> And so much of the energy debate now is always people talking about, here's the benefits of nuclear, and here's the drawbacks of nuclear, and here's the benefits of wind power, and here's the drawbacks of wind power. And so there's always these debates about which energy technology is best. And so in your mind, what energy technology is best? I think that the reason it's difficult to answer that question is exactly for the reasons you brought up, which is there's these trade-offs with every energy technology. And so we, when we look at what, which one is the best, the answer will be different depending on who you ask. So if you ask consumers, they'll be interested in the best one for them, for the most part, the one that's the cheapest. There are certain subsects of people who are willing to pay more if they see certain benefits in another area, perhaps carbon dioxide or some kind of environmental benefits with regard to particular 
particulate matter in the atmosphere. And so it becomes very difficult to judge, is it better to have nuclear proliferation risks and less CO2, or is it better to have higher costs and less CO2 using a natural gas or something like that instead of coal? And, and some people would say, well, it's all going to be burned anyway, so it doesn't really matter. We might as well just do what's cheapest. And so it's really difficult to tell which one is the best, and they all have a different set of drawbacks and limitations. To answer your question, I have no idea. <laughs> I've heard some people describe you a little bit as a critical environmentalist, as somebody who critiques renewable energy. I've also heard people describe some of the, or you've described some of the things in your book as renewable fairy tales. Could you talk a little bit about what those mean? So I am a critical environmentalist in that I'm interested in critiquing the kind of sacred things or things that we take for granted in environmentalism. But I'm not interested in critiquing the field itself or in critiquing the motives of the field, I should say. I consider myself to be an environmentalist. And I'm really interested in and curious about the types of issues that we hold dear. And I don't think that those should be held sacred. I think that they should be something that we open up and look inside. So that kind of comes to the idea of the fairy tales that we live in. And I think as environmentalists, we've become accustomed to thinking about technologies as being able to solve the problems that we deal with. Uh, the environmental problems that we deal with. And I think it's necessary to kind of take a step back from time to time and, and look at the technologies and say, well, the technologies might work or they might be efficient or there might be lots of technical measures that we can use to say that they work or are doing what they're supposed to do. But it depends very much on the context of how they're used, we find, if you look a little closer. So without looking at the context or thinking about the context in which the energy is going to be used or how the energy is going to be produced, it's difficult to understand whether those technologies are actually solutions or if the idea that they're a solution is just a fairy tale. And so this is a very complex, but I tried to pull that apart chapter by chapter in Green Illusions and try to show what most environmentalists think about certain energy technologies and then what we're actually finding in the field when we do measurements and, and look into how much of a benefit these technologies actually have in real life. Why do people love the idea of solar power so much? Aren't photovoltaics good at reducing CO2 emissions and aren't they continually on a rapidly decreasing cost curve of production? This is really the, the intriguing story about solar cells. If you read anything about solar cells these days, you do get this idea that the cost curve is decreasing rapidly, that solar cell costs are coming down and that they're becoming more affordable. Technologies are becoming more efficient. And actually, all of that stuff is true. The technological costs are coming down. The solar cells are getting more efficient. But there's a lot of trade-offs at the same time. So the solar cell cost might come down, but then the solar panel that you create using that technology might not last as long. Or you might increase the efficiency, but the increases in inefficiency required you to use more heavy metals. And coming back to the issue of cost itself, this idea of the decreasing cost curve, the decrease in the cost curve is mostly on the solar technologies, the kind of technical components that are in the solar cells. But if we look at the broader scale, we step back and say, well, what do the installed costs look like when they're actually on the house? in a context of being in neighborhoods and things like that, we find that the installed cost has actually not gone down. And the reason it hasn't gone down is because we have to pay for things like insurance and fossil fuels to transport the panels around, installation costs. And these kinds of things, these costs have not decreased. In fact, a lot of them have gone up with the volatility in oil prices. And so really, it's important to look at what the installed cost is because that's what we're actually going to end up paying. 
And the largest database of installed cost data is in California. The, the, the largest one that I know of is in California. There's large ones in Germany as well, but it's a different context in Germany, so it's difficult to kind of compare to the North American context. And in there, we find that the, those installed costs in California have been relatively flat over the past decade. They do go up and down a little bit, but it looks like even if the cost of the panels went down dramatically, we still have to pay for that installed cost. And, and that's really the kind of untold story behind solar cell costs. So it's not the high-tech costs so much that are coming down. It's the low-tech costs that are remaining roughly the same? Yeah, it's all of these low-tech costs, the things that we usually don't think of when we think of technological development as far as high-tech or, or putting solar cells on roofs. And those low-tech costs are, are really biting us. And, and we don't really see any possibility for those to come down too much more. It, it is possible that they'll, they'll go up and down. It's, it, there is possible. Over time, we'll find ways, more efficient ways of installing solar cells. But we've installed a lot of solar cells in California, and, and the costs are, are not really coming down that much. Uh, those low-tech costs are pretty durable. So we hear all the time on the news and in uh, documentaries and such that if we just get our act together as a you know country, as humanity, invest in solar cells on a scale that we could really create an impact if we just do it on scale in mass. Couldn't just part of the Mojave Desert just power the whole United States if we put down a whole bunch of solar panels out there? Couldn't it just power the whole country? Well, yeah. I mean, this is a kind of factoid that uh, travels around in a lot of different media. And it's this idea that if we just could take one small part of a desert somewhere, we could power the United States, we could power the U.S. and Canada, we could power the whole world. But the problem with this statistic is not that it is, is patently false. There's some truth in there. And, and that's actually what makes it so alluring, is that there is a little bit of truth in there. And the idea is that there is a lot of energy that hits the planet from the sun. But the problem is in actually containing that energy and then producing a fuel or electricity out of it that we can use in our homes. And that's where the problem comes in. So yes, there is the amount of energy that's hitting the desert is equivalent to the amount of energy that we might use. But whether or not we can contain that to actually use it is the real question. And even if the solar cell costs were to drop to zero, I mean, even if we, the technology were to get to so good that we could drop the cost so low that it's cheaper than chewing gum, we'd still have the problem of having to pay for the installations and all the maintenance and even at a zero cell cost, a lot of people think that solar cells still would not become competitive. And that's a really shocking statistic to think about, that even if it's free, it's still not going to be a good deal. So that means that the efficiency level of the solar cell would have to go way up from where it is today in order to make that equation work. Because even at a cell cost zero, if you could increase the efficiency a lot, then maybe you could start to see some benefit. But we're probably not going to see those benefits by spending more money on increasing solar cell production now. We might see those benefits if we spend more money on research and development. But more money is being spent on solar cell production than research at this point. I worked for an electric utility, and one of the things that I was involved in there was installing solar panels across the area that the utility operated in. And one of the pieces of rationale, there was a lot of reasons that the company wanted to do it, but one of the pieces of rationale was that they wanted to develop solar PV as a technology. And one of the ways that they thought they could do that was by realizing economies of scale to bring the cost down for the technology over the long term so that the whole process could become more and more efficient. Is there some truth to that? 
Well, yeah, actually, economies of scale work work on a lot of businesses, and they work in the solar industry as well. The more solar cells we produce, the better we learn how to produce them, and the costs do come down uh, because of that. But they don't come down uh, very much. The, the, it, these are kind of called learning by doing effects, and um, and this is being researched. There's a guy named Greg Nemet, who's an energy researcher, who has done quite a bit of work on this. And Professor Nemet has found that there are those effects, that the learning by doing effects happen, but they're, they're very small. So if we end up spending, say, a million dollars on installing solar panels, only a fraction of that will actually go toward advancing the technology. Actually, it ends up being a very small fraction of that million dollars ends up going toward the technology. And the rest goes through to all the stuff like building the manufacturing plant. You're providing the fossil fuels to transport the pieces all over the planet as they eventually will become solar cells. And so it's kind of interesting to look at it from that perspective and say, hmm, should we, maybe we shouldn't be spending so much money on constructing these things to advance the technology. And maybe we should spend more money on just advancing the technology directly, spending that million dollars directly on research and development. And, you know, that has some limitations as well, but it's something that people should be thinking about. Are there many environmental factors that we need to consider of impact on the environment, such as, you know, heavy metals or chemicals that go into solar cells and, and their, you know, recyclability and their destruction and reusability, those kind of things that we need to think about as well? Yeah, yeah. And this is coming back to what we spoke about before, this idea that, you know, there's it's difficult to compare uh, apples and oranges and, and different types of drawbacks that we get from different technologies. And, and many people admire solar photovoltaic cells for silently extracting clean energy from the sun's rays. But the panels do contain heavy metals, unfortunately, uh, and those can leap to the groundwater when they're disposed at the end of the life cycle. There's actually a large study done by the Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition that looks into that issue directly. It's a fascinating study that shows that the photovoltaic manufacturers employ all kinds of toxic and explosive compounds. And those can lead to unintended health risks for workers, local residents, and anyone else who lives near where those solar cells will eventually be disposed. So everyone tends to love the idea of harvesting energy from the sun. And in fact, so much that I saw a billboard after the Deepwater Horizon uh, horrific accident there. I saw a billboard that said that the last time there was a solar energy spill, it was called a sunny day. <laughs> and, you know, everyone just loves the idea of solar power. Why is it that even despite the limitations and some of the problems we were just talking about, why are solar cells such a powerful symbol of what people think of when they start considering the energy future? Well, you know, that's what I would like to know. And that's one of my main areas of research. And I like to think of the book as actually just a snapshot of that research because I'm not done. I'm not done trying to figure out what all is behind this. And I'm really curious to know because I was enamored with the idea of solar cells at one time as well. I can remember my librarian at school had this little fan that sat on her desk and it would spin around and it had a little solar cell on its base. And I, I just thought it was magical because there was no battery or anything like that. It just sat there and uh, spun like magic. And I think it's a little bit in our culture. It's a little bit in our way of thinking. We've been kind of told and promised since grade school that solar cells will become these great technologies and they're going to solve a lot of our environmental problems. And that's been a really alluring story and a really convincing story for a long time. I'm not sure how much longer that story is going to last, though, because I think that these side effects are going to become more prominent. I think they're going to gain more attention in the future. And as environmentalists, we have to think about what are we going to do to move on beyond that? And so 
yeah, it's it's a really interesting question that you bring up is why why do we love love them so much? And I'd like to know like I'm something I'm continually researching. I talk about a little bit in the book, but it's really an interesting issue to look at. Okay, we've talked about solar panels a whole bunch here. Let's move on to a different topic. How about wind power? Since it's a lot cheaper kilowatt hour, installed capacity has rocketed a lot recently, hasn't it? Yeah, well, wind power, you're absolutely right. It's much cheaper uh, per kilowatt hour when we install it. And the story of wind power is less uh, a story of, of side effects or even costs, but it's more a story of limitations. So we're already running into some limitations of wind turbines. Most of it is because there's only so many kind of sweet, windy spots available that are easy to get to. And I mean, there's a lot of windy spaces on the planet, but they're not very easy to get to. They're not easy to build turbines. They're across windy ridges on mountains in the middle of nowhere. And so we're already kind of seeing a, the problem with this is that we're pushing wind turbines closer to residential areas and out into the ocean where the costs start to go up dramatically for obvious reasons because you have salt water, corrosive salt water and, and hurricanes and things like that when you start pushing these out into the sea. And that's, I think, just kind of a hint to the limitations ahead. And all of the wind power that we currently have globally is supplying less than 1% of our, our energy needs. So if we look at it as a, a longer-term option, yes, it will be there, and yes, it will grow, but we can't really expect it to take a really large role unless consumption levels come down. And that's kind of an intriguing part of the story as well, because it used to be that wind power was a much larger part of the global energy supply. We, we even used to do a transatlantic travel by wind. But that was uh, long before fossil fuels. And once fossil fuels came along, then it, we found ways to use those uh, that were a lot easier and faster than wind power. You mean hot air balloons? Like, Well, yeah, hot air balloons. <laughs> sailing ships, yeah. Oh, and sailing and, ships, too. That's right. Mm-hmm. And actually, a lot of people don't realize this, but wind turbines, uh, windmills, actually produced a large proportion of energy about 100, 200 years ago. And we don't really think about that today, but there actually was a thriving large wind power industry that kind of disappeared in the late 1800s as fossil fuels came online. And then it wasn't until kind of later, around the 1970s during the oil crisis in the United States, at least, where we started to see kind of a rebirth of the industry. And of course, at that point, the former industry had completely disappeared. So we had to kind of start from scratch and they had to start building wind turbines using bits and parts that they could scrap from other industries like uh, the shipbuilding industry and other industries that had you know kind of these large mechanical parts uh, that they could draw from and they kind of cobbled together wind turbines from that. And it's a fascinating story in its own to see how quickly that has progressed because wind turbines now are far more efficient and far more cost-effective than they were just a decade ago. So I was recently in Chicago, and it's all—it's known as the Windy City, and there's—it's very windy, obviously. And I was looking at all the skyscrapers they have there. Wouldn't it be great if we just put wind turbines on the tops of these skyscrapers, and you know the sides where all the wind is shooting through these enormous buildings? And what about just on the top of my house? Could that be something we could do? Well, yeah, it's been done in the UK and in the United States and around other parts of the world because, you know, we think of the, the windy parts of our cities as being really windy and couldn't we just kind of grab some of that wind and use it? Actually, in cities, wind is much lower, much far reduced than out in the windy plains and out in the sea. The strength of the winds in the plains and seas are, are far 
higher and more reliable than in cities. The windy cities, Chicago actually isn't very windy at all. It doesn't even make the top 10 list of windy cities. And that's this is an intriguing idea for a lot of people to put the wind turbines on buildings. The problem is that when you have wind turbines on buildings, first of all, they're not in a very windy area to begin with because most cities are not windy just because there's a lot of, because of trees and, and buildings and things like that getting in the way and affecting the flow of the wind. And there's also the issue of safety because you have these things that are basically like helicopter rotors that are sitting there spinning around and they fail. They fail quite often, actually, and they build up ice and they throw ice and all kinds of things like this curve. And so when you're in the city, those risks intensify dramatically. And having those risks anywhere would be an issue if there are humans around, but having them in the city with lots of high density of humans, if they were to toss a blade or something like that, they can rip through the side of a building when that occurs and it has. The other problem from a more practical standpoint of carbon emissions or looking at the energy use is that the smaller wind turbines are not nearly as efficient as large wind turbines. And so putting them in cities and on buildings, oftentimes they don't even provide an offset to the carbon impact that was used to create them. The wind is renewable, but the turbines are not. And so we need to create them somehow, and they rely on fossil fuels primarily to create the wind turbines. You would ideally want to offset that fossil fuel use during the use of the turbine, and that just doesn't happen in most urban contexts. Well, at least aren't wind turbines good at reducing the amount of carbon that's produced when they're creating electricity compared to traditional fossil fuel sources? Yeah, if, if we look at like a coal plant and a wind turbine field, Definitely, there's going to be less carbon produced by the wind farm than the coal plant. And that's taking the whole thing into account, looking at how much it costs to build both of these facilities, how long they last, and how much energy they produce over time. So that perspective, yes. The, the problem is we have to think about the context again in where the wind turbines are going to be built. Because if the wind tur turbines are built up on a ridge in a, in a mountain somewhere or even near a rainforest where we have to build roads up to them and then the roads allow for uh, logging or illegal poaching and things like that, which occurs around road construction in sensitive areas, then would those side effects kind of break down the benefits that you're getting? And they may or they may not. It just depends on where it's being built. Another example is looking at this offset idea is in energy use, if we look at the European context versus the American context, if we build wind farms in Europe, then very likely, at least there's a higher likelihood that they will offset fossil fuel use. But there's no evidence that they offset fossil fuel use in the United States. And that's because we have an expanding population. We have high levels of consumption. And all that the extra energy does is it reduces energy costs because they're subsidized generally. So that reduces energy costs, which increases demand. And we're right back to then where we started with the increasing demand and insufficient supply. So it's kind of like a boomerang effect. And there's actually a, a study, really intriguing study, that was just done by Professor uh, Richard York. He's at the University of Oregon, I believe. And he wrote a paper that was just published. Well, actually, I think it's going to be coming out soon in, in Nature. It's been published online. And he looks at this idea that wind turbines offset fossil fuel use. And he's found in the United States that there's no evidence when we look at the historical data that they offset fossil fuel use that actually 
uh, when we build a wind turbine, we can't assume that it's going to offset any amount of coal production. And that, there's a lot of reasons behind that. One of the big ones is that it, sometimes the wind stops, and when it stops, you still have to provide power, so you have to have the, the backup power there ready to go. So it, it becomes a very expensive way of producing power overall because you have to have a whole wind farm built for when the wind is blowing, and then you have to have a whole energy grid powered by coal and natural gas or nuclear when the wind is not blowing. And so these are some of the, the limitations that you run into with wind power. So he's found that in the United States, there's potentially no carbon reductions from wind power compared to coal. Yeah, he runs through a few different areas. And he's found that for hydropower and nuclear power, there is some offset, but it's small. If you want to offset one kilowatt of coal production, then you have to build about somewhere between, I think it was 6 and 12 or 6 to 14 kilowatts of hydropower or nuclear power in order to offset just one kilowatt of coal power. And then when he looks specifically at wind and solar, although he was working, I have to say, he was working with very small data sets, which he, which he points out himself, that you know the numbers are so small when we look at wind and, and solar output that it's, it's difficult to draw too much of a solid conclusion from these. But from the research that he's done, he found that, in fact, there was no benefit at all, no carbon offset at all by building these additional technologies. And part of it probably has to do with the amount of energy that's actually used to create the wind turbines and the solar panels. And part of it has to do with the limitations that I was just speaking about from other perspectives and the contextual perspectives of how that energy is created and used. I just have a hard time wrapping my mind around the fact that having wind turbines, would, which, like you say, the net energy of them is not really beneficial to the grid. But, you know, having a secondary backup system feels like it's not really a bad thing. If you add enough windmills to a system, or like, for, for example, in Denmark, there's tons of windmills. They get a whole bunch of their energy from Denmark. When you fly in on the plane, you see all the uh, windmills out there. Is there any benefit to having a lot of these windmills? And if you have enough, you can kind of compensate for the fact that it's not really regular and it, you can get it from different places? Yeah, you definitely get some benefit by having, say, some windmills in Denmark and then some in Germany and some in the Netherlands. And so maybe it's windy one place and then it's not windy in another place. And you certainly do get a benefit from that. It's not very large, but it's there. There's a study that was done in Australia on that very point, actually, uh, looking at wind farms across Australia and connecting them together and they found that, yeah, there, there's some benefits to having the turbine spread out a bit so uh, you can take advantage of wind at different locations. It isn't huge. Denmark is in an interesting position because they can use the excess wind power that they have when it is windy to run through direct lines that they have set up to Norway to run pumps that pump water up into mountain reservoirs in the mountains. And then that stored pump storage can then be uh, run through dams and used for electricity later. So that it's expensive, but it's a good way to kind of back up the wind power capacity uh, without using, you know, something that would be even more ridiculous, like batteries or something like that. The cost of those would be mind-numbingly expensive at this point. But the pump storage really gives Denmark an advantage, and that's why we see a lot of wind power there, is because when they do have too, too windy of a period, they have to dump some of it, but uh, a lot of it they can use to pump water up and use later. 
So with all of those limitations of wind power, why is it that politicians love the concept of renewable energy so much, especially wind power? I remember during the 2008 campaign when Obama was campaigning, he was saying that we could get as much as 20% of the nation's power from wind by 2030, and he was citing a report from the Department of Energy about it. Yeah, well, that report is actually a piece of green illusions that I look into, the, the book that I wrote, into more depth. And I pull apart the report and look at the assumptions and how the data was produced for the report. And I find some really interesting and intriguing things that are going on behind the scenes at the Department of Energy. And it's, I shouldn't say it's completely behind the scenes. I mean, it's actually, in a way, uh, even though I was doing uh, interviews at the Department of Energy, people that were there and trying to find out what was happening behind the scenes, most of it was happening in front of the scenes. And most of the, the data sets were published online and their methods were published online. And But it was intriguing to find that what actually was going on is that the data that the Department of Energy had in its possession was not really favorable to wind power. And so when they wanted to create this new report that the president used, which was actually developed during the Bush administration, although it's been used by both Bush and Obama to promote wind power, when they decided to build this new report, they needed a new data set. They needed a new data set that was more favorable to wind power. And so they hired a corporate consultant to do that. And I kind of tell the story about why they hired the corporate consultant. And then what the corporate consultant came up with is the intriguing part of the story. And at the very end of this, to, to cut to the chase, we end up with a report uh, that says that the United States could fill 20% of the nation's grid with wind power. You know, it's it's highly suspect for a lot of reasons, which, uh, which I go into detail in the book, some of them that we've already spoken about from the limitations standpoint. And wind power is a very powerful symbol in its own right, not just in producing uh, energy, but producing kind of the political power. And I think that's what brings politicians into the fold, because they're interested in satisfying their constituents and looking like they are engaged with the future. And wind power and solar power, biofuels, they all have that ability to kind of engage with that future narrative that people are interested in and get people excited about voting. And so I think that's why we see a lot of political support for these technologies. So I'm starting to do some research on the history of the North American utility grid. And I'm always fascinated at the ways in which all of these different technologies that we take for granted today have developed over time through so many different decisions and historical events. And so do you think that there's a way that renewables can be useful to our current society without making major changes to the electricity distribution and transmission grid? Well, that's a great question. You bring up the, this idea, again, of how energy will be used within the context that we have. So in the context that we currently have, as you mentioned, the, the current conditions that we have in the United States, at least, um, it's probably highly unlikely that there's really anything on the alternative energy side that's going to create an impact anytime soon. And that's just because of physical limitations. When we look back in history, we see a lot of technological development that happened over years and accidents. And these stories are fascinating. But there are also limits on a lot of these technologies that are created by physics, basic physics. And we haven't really found a way to get around those. So it's going to be more an issue of the pivot point here is going to be on the society itself and how much energy we actually use. And so we're going to have to shift the way we use energy and the amount of energy we use in order for alternative energy technologies to have a larger impact. So we can kind of imagine that we have a national bucket of energy use and, and that bucket is leaking. 
And so if we just put like a shot glass of energy into that, which is about what wind or solar would represent, it's not really going to be that big of a difference. But if we were to kind of plug some of the leaks in that bucket, uh, it would make a large difference. And so that's really kind of the shift that I argue that we have to start thinking about more. How am I supposed to sit here listening to your lies when every word that you say Boulder City is the first stop on a tour where I'll be talking about what we're calling an all-of-the-above energy strategy. All-of-the-above a strategy that relies on producing more oil and gas here in America, uh, but also more biofuels, more fuel-efficient cars, more wind power, and as you can see, a whole lot more solar power. This is the largest solar plant of its kind anywhere in the country. That's worth applauding. Americans are an optimistic people. We, that was confirmed yesterday when results came out showing that Americans believe by a two-to-one margin that we will grow clean energy jobs by the millions when we adopt a clean energy bill in this house, and they are right. We should be optimistic that we're going to build electric cars and sell them to the rest of the world, not just China. We ought to be optimistic that we're going to build concentrated solar energy technology and sell it to the rest of the world. We ought to be optimistic that we're going to build the electric batteries that will fuel our cars and help make our grid more responsive. This is the optimism that those of us who have who are going to pass a clean energy bill this year to make this happen. Here's another reason for optimism. Yesterday we reached a consensus in the House Energy and Commerce Committee with broad swaths of the country, the South North Industrial Ag, we have reached a consensus that we are going to grow jobs everywhere in this country because we're the optimists and the optimists are going to win this clean energy debate. There is no need for a bridge uh, between coal and the renewable energy future because the renewable energy future is here right now. We can invest in that and solve the problems today. Each industry lobbies for funds from Congress and from other uh, funding sources and those industries that have the most uh, installed capacity already generally have the most lobbyists. And so those industries that lobby the most and make the most noise are generally coal, the natural gas, and the nuclear industry. And these are generally the least beneficial of all the industries uh, for trying to solve large-scale problems. That's how we're going to build the industries of the future, because we make smarter products using better technology than anybody else. That's how we'll win the future in the 21st century. I mean, to, to have an effective, efficient green technology, you have to use different kinds of metallurgy, which is very sophisticated, which obliges you to, to go deeply in, in, in the earth and to have the same kind of action upon the planet as the world wants. I mean, green technology is green only in its surface, but to create this technology, you have the same means of destroying the planet as the, the, the usual technology. Pickens wants to build wind farms and build businesses around this new sustainable energy form. 
The wind farm I'm building is in Tampa, Texas, it'll be 4,000 megawatts. Uh, there'll be a lot of wind farms built north of Pampa, Texas, all uh, uh, to the Canadian border. Uh, that can be used for power generation, which would release natural gas from power generation so that you could use the natural gas as transportation fuel. And that would cut our dependency on foreign oil by uh, maybe as much as 38, 40 percent. Now you have an object that's 400 and something feet tall, spinning at 150 miles an hour. I mean, who would have imagined that one blade is seven tons? The whole turbine is, you're talking 600,000 pounds. 600,000 pounds doesn't land with a whimper. Folks in one Oklahoma town feeling the ground actually shake this morning. The tremor was not an earthquake, however, rather a wind turbine. This is green energy. This is big money. In this country, we control our own destiny. We control our own resources. We control our own economy. We chart our own course. I don't want to be subject to the whim of somebody somewhere else. And that's why we need an all of the above energy strategy. So we're going to develop every possible source of American-made energy. Oil and gas, wind power, solar power, biofuels, fuel-efficient cars and trucks that get more miles to the gallon. That's our future. And the good news is we're already seeing progress. Let's get to what's, let's get to what's real. Let's get to what's real. You'll never be mine. Stop wasting my time. what is the deal? Let's get to what's Hi, this is David Suzuki, and you're listening to The Extra Environmentalist. When we interviewed Joseph Tainter on the show earlier, he's from Utah State, and he said that ethanol didn't really make sense. Why has it captured the public's attention so much? We see it at all of our gas pumps. We see it. Part of, of our gas is going to be made from ethanol. Here a lot in the news media. A lot of politicians are toting the big-time benefits of ethanol. What is your opinion on that? Wow, ethanol is a fantastic story. And it is a bundle of promises that ended up turning sour. I think now a lot, more, a lot of people understand the side effects and the externalities that occurred from valuing ethanol production. And in the United States, it's still largely produced. It's a fascinating story because it, it had to do with Iowa and Iowa's kind of placement within the primary, the political primaries in the United States. And it makes farming and the idea of farming very central to American politics because the last thing any anyone wants to do is go to Iowa and campaign in the heat of the Iowa spotlight and be seen as anti-farmer. And so yeah. the industry has been able to position itself as driving certain technologies or ideas and getting them through because, you know, the politicians don't want to say no at that point. It's very early in the primaries, and so they don't want to look like a fool. So 
ethanol is, is derived from corn, for those people who don't know. And, and, and at least in the United States and other countries, it's derived from primarily sugarcane. But that's an interesting story in itself. But the corporate energy giant, or the corporate kind of the big corn, I guess you could call them, the giants in, in the United States decided we could use, we could create more corn, grow more corn, get more subsidies for that, and then we can create ethanol out of it. And we can move from agricultural production to energy production. And they were very influential they spent a lot of money on making sure that, that they would get these policies through, and they did get through, and they've made a lot of money on it. They're continuing to make a lot of money on it. It'll be an interesting thing to see what happens in the future as far as, as ethanol is concerned. So you were talking about how ethanol was, in many ways, a bundle of promises that didn't really play out in terms of what people were told that ethanol could do for society and for the nation's energy future and what it actually was capable of doing. In some ways, is that the case for all of the renewable energy technologies because I've been noticing it seems like every month there's at least another solar PV company that goes bankrupt or perhaps two or three that go bankrupt. And so I'm wondering why that's the case, why so many solar PV companies are going bankrupt. Yeah, it is, I would say, kind of a bundle of promises with each one of these technologies, even though it's a different bundle of promises with each one and kind of a different kind of danger lurking in the background that's going to topple each one of them down. And for solar cell producers at this point, the, the biggest reason that they're having problems is because the price has dropped because of the, the economic situation. So they have a lot of the problems that any other manufacturer would have during an economic crisis. And then on top of that, uh, China is adding a lot of subsidies to solar cell production. And so uh, we see that pushing the prices down even more because Chinese manufacturers are able to compete on a global marketplace with a big backing of the Chinese government, throwing a lot of money into their industry. So it's it's really difficult to compete on that level because you have someone else who's playing on a different level of subsidies. So although we subsidize solar cells a lot in the United States also, and so it's basically just different levels of subsidies that we're looking at. But those are the, the reasons that prices are kind of dropping. They're not sustainable. They're not sustainable over the long term at all. And that's why companies are starting to go bankrupt because they're forcing to kind of like grow their panels out there and sell them below market rates. And the kind of ones without as much backing are falling down. And we'll probably see more bankruptcies in the, in the future. I think that the Solyndra affair is just the beginning of a long stretch of these kinds of bankruptcies. Well, here in North Carolina, we get a lot of our power from both coal and nuclear power over down at Sharon Harris. Could you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of nuclear power in this same kind of context that we've been talking about? The nuclear power is fascinating because it has a different set of limitations than the other technologies that we have available to us today. So nuclear power, the fissile material, the uranium, is available throughout the world. It's often available in countries that are not politically unstable. Australia, Canada has a lot of it. There's a lot of it in the United States. And we can also, at quite a large cost, but it is possible, to extract it from seawater. And if we start extracting uranium from seawater, well, then we have an almost limitless supply of uranium available. So we don't have to worry about running out of uranium. But we have the other issues uh, with the nuclear power development. One of them is the obvious, which is the risks that we have encountered with Chernobyl and Fukushima. But then there's other risks as well. There's nuclear proliferation risks, and then the risks of storing this stuff 
stuff long term. You can uh, recycle some of it, but then if you recycle it, you're left with a lot of separated plutonium, which is ideal for making bombs. But if you don't separate it and recycle it, recycle it then uh, you're left with a lot of nuclear waste that then you then have to dispose of. And, and so those are the headaches that the nuclear power industry is going to have to deal with in the future. And they don't have just headaches on one front. They have headaches coming from a lot of different areas. And it's going to be intriguing to see what happens over the coming decades with the nuclear power, because there's always going to be that allure there, especially as uh, fossil fuel prices start getting more and more volatile. We're always going to see people coming back to nuclear, and it won't take long before the memory of Fukushima starts to fade in our in our minds. And I think that we definitely have to watch for a resurgence of the nuclear industry. I think it probably will happen. I think it's very good for people to be realistic about what the benefits and drawbacks of that are, because it's going to be a topic of conversation for a very long time. Did you say seawater? You can power a nuclear reactor with seawater? You cannot power the nuclear reactor with seawater, but you can uh, extract uranium out of seawater. So uranium exists in all seawater at a very, very small concentration, and you can extract it out at quite a large cost. The cost is somewhere around 10 times higher than it costs to mine uranium currently. But still, it's kind of within... We start to look at energy costs over the long term, and we were talking... uh, many generations probably uh, before energy costs would ever get up to the point where we would need to start extracting uranium from the seawater. But it is within kind of like the realm of reason that we could potentially do this in the future and have a very large supply uh, of uranium. And the nuclear industry will use that card to kind of, they already are using that card actually, to kind of stage their technology as the the energy of the future. Fukushima obviously put a huge dent in that progress that they were making, but it will come back. I'm going to play a voicemail from a listener now. Howdy. I was wondering if you guys uh, are familiar with the lifter liquid fluoride thorium reactor and what your analysis of it is. Kirk Sorensen, if you haven't watched it yet, uh, the lifter in five minutes on YouTube. Uh, would be a good start. I guess it falls under the category of uh, techno fix. You know, here's hoping. Uh, at the same time, you know, I'm the kind of guy who I was just out digging trenches for potatoes today. So, oh, anyway, I just would uh, curious, you know, how much you guys know about that, about the lifter. Keep up the good work. Talk to you later. Bye. You know, I'm intrigued by the story of thorium. So the big advantage that people point out, the thorium proponents, is that there's more thorium available than uranium. And that secondly, when you're done with it, byproducts are not as dangerous and they're not ideal for bomb making. So it is true that there's more thorium around than uranium, and it's even easier to get at. The reason uranium was used instead of thorium uh, back when uh, nuclear power was being developed is because you could have the benefit of getting bombs from uranium as well as energy. And so governments were really interested in using uranium instead of thorium. So all of the development went into uranium rather than thorium. So today, thorium is still very experimental. Not as much money has been spent on it. And so it will take decades to get the technology up to the point where we could actually use it for energy production. And and it does leave behind byproducts that are not as dangerous uh, as uranium byproducts uh, from a lot of different perspectives. However, the armaments industry has actually taken note of this and said, hmm, I wonder, I wonder if we can find a way to build bombs from thorium byproducts as well. And sure enough, they have. And they've 
have already tested them. So that kind of throws that idea that thorium would be safer uh, out the window. But, you know, is this a technology that we should keep an eye on? It's probably something that will get more funding in the future. Whether or not it will, we'll be able to use it anytime soon is difficult to say. And of course, it, it still suffers a lot of the other risks that irregular nuclear reactors pose uh, as far as meltdown and things like that. They may not be as great depending on the design, but, you know, they're definitely still there. So media goes a long way in kind of educating people. I mean, this podcast is a media format and it goes a long way to educating people and kind of shaping the idea of what energy alternatives are available and what people should be using and the ideas that people should be conserving energy and those kind of things as well. What role does media have in shaping the debate on the energy future? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I think that the real promise in media is going to be investigative reporting. I mean, that's really the core of the media's mission is investigative reporting. And that's becoming an uphill battle in a lot of newsrooms. Uh, from journalists that I've spoken with, as well as studies that have been done by Pew on investigative journalism, and they found that there's a lot of pressure, uh, a lot more pressure, according to journalists, from advertisers and on the editorial staff. And so I think we're also seeing a lot of newsrooms being chopped. They're being consolidated and investigative reporting, which is more, far more time-consuming than kind of like this, just the journalism, I call it, of just churning out uh, short little articles that are often based on news releases. And that's kind of taking precedence because it's faster to get them out. You can create more original content for the web, and that increases ad revenue. So I think when we look into the future of media, we're really going to have to try to value as much as we can investigative reporting. And a lot of that's probably going to end up coming from the public sector rather than the corporate sector just because of the issue of economics. Yeah, and going off of that, do you see that internet journalism will be a leader in helping to get larger coverage of this kind of corporate greenwashing? Well, I think it, yes and no. In in some cases, it can. But in the vast majority of cases, uh, internet journalists complain more than print journalists that advertisers have larger or create larger pressures on their editorial work. And actually, a lot of the eyeballs that end up going to internet news sources actually end up, oh, those news sources are actually owned by some of the larger media conglomerates that are already uh, in the established media world. So it's difficult to know what impact the internet is really going to have uh, on creating more investigative reporting. It's it's probably still too soon to tell because there's still a lot of the fallout occurring across newsrooms, a lot of things that are still changing, a lot of jobs that are still being cut. So it's going to probably take many more years before we know the full story of what's happening, but definitely doesn't look good right now. So we've been talking over the first hour of our interview here, and we'll go for just a little bit longer, but we've been talking about all the different types of energy production strategies and different drawbacks to them. And what I'm wondering is why is it that the environmental movement so readily embraces the idea of renewable energy because I hear leading environmentalists, people like Bill McKibben, going and talking to other environmentalists and saying that we need to get off fossil fuels and the rationale is very clear and makes a lot of sense on why we should get off fossil fuels. But they always say that we need to move to this alternative energy future with wind and solar. But I'm wondering that with all the drawbacks to alternative energy production, how do you sell that future that doesn't have fossil fuels when the alternative of alternative energy can't really support our idea of how the economy operates? Yeah, well, that's the real question. And I don't really have an answer to that because that's something that we're 
we're going to have to find out over time. And I'm just another member of the search party. I, I really admire Bill McKibben because he brings a, a lot of perspective to important issues. The place where we probably do disagree, and, and very politely, is that this idea that alternative energy technologies are going to, to solve the problems that we have. I think one of the reasons the environmental movement has, has latched onto alternative energy technologies is because a lot of people genuinely believe that they will offset coal use. And if they did offset coal use, they might be a, a lot more beneficial. But there's no evidence that they do offset coal use or, or fossil fuel use in the United States. And there's no reason to believe that they will in the future, from, given historical data that we now have. But I think it's also kind of a, there's a breakdown uh, of the environmental movement. It's being infiltrated by this uh, productivist mindset, the idea that the way to solve our energy problems is to create more energy. But I really don't see that we have as much of an energy crisis as a consumption crisis. And like you brought up, uh, how do we kind of move from thinking about uh, solutions in terms of production to solutions in terms of consumption? And I think the key to this is trying to find paths that are congruent with people's interests, that find ways of reducing energy consumption across an economy and across a society that are congruent with people's interests that they will actually, when they were given the chance, actually want to embrace because they will increase their standards of living, increase their levels of happiness or satisfaction. So I really think that, that we have to concentrate more on that, less on production and more on creating these opportunities for people to consume less and enjoy the benefits from doing so. So many of our listeners on this show come to us and say, Seth and Justin, you guys talk about these huge, huge problems, about these huge problems that just are untouchable by me. <laughs> what are some on the ground tactics that I can use to go out there and start tackling some of these problems myself. Are there any feasible leverage points or you know anything we can do to try to solve this crisis that you could recommend to some of our listeners? Yeah, you know, I get the same thing from people because I, I was just at a, a dinner party last night and I was talking to some people about the book and they were asking me some questions and, and they said, you know what, it almost sounds kind of sad. I mean, if you think that the alternative energy technologies are, are not up to speed and they're not going to produce much of an impact, then what do we do? And I say, oh, it's not sad at all, really. There's a lot of things that we can do that are really exciting. And so I, I do run into the same kind of questions, apparently, that you're running into the, from people. And so I actually, in Green Illusions, I draw out 36 different, what I call first steps. I don't really see them as solutions because I don't propose to know the grand solutions to anything. But I do feel that I can kind of provide these first steps and kind of put them out on the table and say, hey, what, what do you think of these? Maybe we can talk about these and maybe by doing these first steps or trying some of these out, they will get us a little further along so that we can make some larger decisions in the future. And I've tried to create these first steps based on ideas that would have a large impact, that would actually create an impact large enough to measure, that would be meaningful. And, and also at the same time, things that are congruent to people's interests, uh, ideas that people would want to pursue because they genuinely would like to do it regardless of its energy benefit. And uh, finally, I wanted to find things that were you know, realistic, that have actually been performed in other parts of the world or ideas that have been executed in the United States on a small scale and could potentially be leveraged into a larger scale solution. And I think those are kind of the, some of the key ways of thinking about our environmental challenges that uh, might be helpful in the future. And I'm always open to new ideas. And I get emails a lot from people with ideas that I think are fantastic. I'm always working on my research and I'll be hopefully producing another book in the future. It'll probably be several years down the road, yeah, but of kind of developing these ideas and moving them along. 
So you're elected president of the United States of America. Oh, dear. Yeah. Where do you start? <laughs> what would your first policy, you know, somehow you won the election. We'll not even worry about what you said okay. during the campaign. Yeah, let's not worry about All right. that. Don't worry about your campaign promises. <laughs> a lot of promises right there. <laughs> yeah. Promises. What, what do you actually do once you're in office? Because you ran on an energy solutions platform and you're going to start solving some energy problems in the United States. What do you do? I would probably start going down the list of the kind of first steps that I have. And, you know, there's some of them that I think are, are really intriguing. Uh, like, you know, there's there's some basic ideas that we could embrace that would have a huge impact. One of them is shifting taxes from income uh, to consumption. So uh, Europeans uh, have do, done this to a large extent. We could do it more in the United States as well. And if you have higher consumption taxes on material consumption or energy consumption, you can end up affecting people's behavior over the long term because energy users will start to reduce the amount of energy they're using in order to save money, which benefits them. And of course, there have to be protections for poorer residents in any kind of a program like this. And Germany rolled out a program that was highly successful that has kind of protected lower income residents while also having a larger consumption tax on energy. And we could do the same in the United States by reducing income taxes. So the net tax burden is about the same. There's side effects and limitations to doing that as well, unfortunately. But it's kind of one step of creating a playing field that would actually be a place where we can start to execute other uh, solutions and hopefully have them take hold. One very simple thing that we could do in, in a context like that would be to have a different type of regulations around packaging, packaging for the material, the things that we buy at the store. In the United States, there's a, often like layers and layers of packaging around a lot of things, and, and a, an amazing amount of energy production goes into building packaging for products. That The packaging, as of course, we don't really care about. It just becomes a nuisance once it's unwrapped from the thing that we actually want. And so in some countries, for are forced to pay for that packaging up front for the recycling or disposal of that packaging up front when they sell the product. And so those firms then economize the packaging, uh, make it smaller and more efficient. And that kind of has energy impacts throughout the whole consumer cycle. And so that's just one small example of how we could increase people's quality of life. I mean, no one really likes to deal with excess packaging. And they actually, the, the complexity of packaging sends a lot of people to the emergency room. Knives slip off and scissors slip off when they're trying to open these things up. And, and that costs billions of dollars a year, actually, in, in the United States, just from the impact of uh, packaging uh, injuries. And so these little kinds of things can start to take hold once you have a broader uh, governance system in place to value reduction in energy consumption rather than producing more energy. So another question to kind of go along with that presidential question. So since you are a philanthropist consultant, I'm sure you get asked the question every day, Ozzy, if I had a million dollars to invest in these kind of green solutions, energy alternative solutions, what should I do with my million dollars and how should I best use it? The answer to that is complex and easy at the same time. There are a variety of different ways that, that one could use the money, uh, in my mind at least. And uh, I mean, if I'm going to be president, I might as well be able to dictate things like this at the same time. So <laughs> yeah. the main areas that I would look at, the first one would be efficiency looking at ways to draw down energy use and at the same time put backstops in place so that those efficiency gains are not lost to greater consumption somewhere else. And that's a tricky kind of uh, road to walk, but there are some uh, solutions or some uh, ideas that we can use to move toward that direction. 
Another area is walkable and bikeable neighborhoods. Walkable and bikeable neighborhoods save a lot of energy. If we look at New Yorkers who live in the most walkable and bikeable neighborhoods in the United States, we find that they use just a fraction of the energy overall in their lives that the rest of Americans use. But they don't see that as a as a detriment or they don't see it as a sacrifice. Actually, people living in New York like living there. There's a high demand to live in New York, which is why the rents are so high. And so if we could create more contexts like that where people could enjoy the benefits of walkable and bikeable neighborhoods, then that would create a real impact as well. Another one is healthcare. Healthcare we don't generally don't think of as being an environmental issue or an energy issue for sure, but it actually is because when societies have access to healthcare, uh, we find that the healthcare costs come down when there is a kind of a universal healthcare system, a single payer kind of universal healthcare system. We find that the the overall healthcare costs come down dramatically. Healthcare costs in the United States are extremely high, the highest in the world, and a universal healthcare system could help bring those down. And behind a lot of those costs, behind the billions of dollars of costs is all energy. A lot of uh, the costs of healthcare arise from energy. It's basically kind of two areas. You have labor and energy that everything arises from. And so by cutting down these unnecessary costs and unnecessary wastes, you're actually saving energy in the long run. So these are the kinds of solutions that I like to think of rather than producing energy, saving energy through a lot of different means that end up increasing people's quality of life at the same time. So I think with those strategies, you're going to be on the block for impeachment because you know <laughs> using less isn't popular in the United States. And if you come out with a sweater on and you say, you know, turn down the thermostat, it's not going to be popular with a lot of people. And in the United States, we're all about working hard. And, you know, we work more hours than any other country and have fewer benefits in terms of vacation time and all these things. Is there any tie between the amount that we work and how much we consume and how much energy we use? That's a great point because there's actually sociologists that have looked at this and they call it the work-spend cycle. There's a sociologist named Julia Shore who has done a lot of work on this. And it's fascinating when we look at this kind of work ethic in the United States and that we should work a lot. When we work a lot, we get more money and the money we have to spend on something and we whatever we spend it on, if it's usually material goods or energy directly, whatever we spend it on usually ends up increasing the demand for energy overall. And so work does become a large part of the amount of energy that a society uses and its work ethic. Now, work provides a lot of meaningful experiences for people. And so in order to kind of wean people off working and living kind of within smaller means voluntarily, which, as you point out, is not popular in the United States at all, but in order to make it popular, to make it more reasonable solution for people, we have to find ways to make it exciting, to make it beneficial. And so we have to find ways of... um, allowing people to keep some of that intrinsic value that they get from their work, from their careers, but then maybe be able to work in ways that are outside of the work-spend cycle. And one of those is through volunteering. Volunteerism leads to a lot of benefits, not only for the people who are being engaged with through the volunteer work, but also the volunteers themselves uh, report uh, that they feel uplifted and higher satisfaction of life. It also exposes people to people of different socioeconomic classes, which makes people feel like they don't need to maybe have as much stuff as keep up with the Joneses uh, because they're exposed to different types of people. And so that's like one of the ways that we can think about moving away from material consumption and the work spend cycle into maybe more durable, also satisfying uh, modes of life.
if we think about the American work ethic and also patterns of work, one of the things we see is that in the last 40 years, America has undergone a big change from its own history and also from the history of European countries with whom it had been sort of moving roughly in tandem since the late 19th century. From about 1870 to 1970, all of the early industrializing countries reduced their working hours very dramatically. In 1870, the average worker in a place like the United States, Canada, Britain, Germany, France, worked about 3,000 hours a year. That's about a 60-hour work week for a 50-week year. By the mid-1970s, we roughly halved that work week in pretty much all of these countries. The U.S. was the leader in work time reduction, in large part because we were the richest country by the, uh, certainly by the mid-20th century. But what happened in the 70s in the U.S. is that that path of work time reduction stalled out. And uh, by, by this, uh, the mid-70s, working hours in the United States started to rise, in contrast to what was happening in all those other countries. So over the next couple of decades, the average American was working more and more hours. I think not so much because of work ethic, although that is part of what kept these long working hours possible and also fueled them, but in large part because it's what employers were demanding, it's the way jobs were structured. People got locked into what I've called a cycle of work and spend. So if they were in a long hour job, they took on a mortgage or credit card debt or other kinds of financial obligations that made it necessary for them to stay in that job. And when those full-time jobs with rising hours were the only good jobs that were available, people took them if they could um, get them. As the um, income distribution got more and more unequal, that also fueled hours of work. Uh, rising inequality leads to higher hours of work, particularly what you see is for people at the bottom of the income distribution, they have to take as many hours as they could um, because their hourly wages were falling. So it was a combination of employer demands, the sort of lock-in on the consumer side, and then those declining wages for people at the bottom. By the end of it, uh, just before the boom, a majority of American workers said they were working more hours than they wanted to, and they were even willing to give up income for it, which is which was pretty unusual given the extent to which people commit their incomes uh, when they get them and find it hard to reduce them. But let's step back a bit and think about how the dynamics of work hours uh, operate to see where the logic in a pathway of shorter hours might be. So the first point is that one of the reasons we have such high unemployment in this country is that working hours are so high. In comparison to European countries, many of whom weathered this downturn without increases in unemployment, and I'm thinking, for example, of Germany, the U.S. has, has had a tremendous amount of job loss. We lost over 8 million jobs. We have uh, only made up a couple of million of those, and we still have 25 million people in the U.S. unemployed or underemployed, meaning they need more hours of work and they can't get it. So we have a huge unemployment problem. If you say to people, do you think we should deal with our unemployment problem by making it much easier for companies to hire five people 
on four-day work weeks rather than four people on five-day work weeks, what you will get is a lot of assent to that because that's fair. How are we going to get all of these young people who are unemployed now jobs? Let me ask college, recent college graduates, would you be willing to take a four-day work week at 80% pay if it meant that all of you could be employed rather than having 20% of you unemployed? And I'm pretty sure the answer is yes, in part because those people will be going from no income to 80% income. That's one of the ways you do this. You could also go to many of the overworked people who have long hours jobs and make good incomes in the top 20% of the distribution and say, would you be interested in progressively um, reducing your working hours in exchange for not getting increases? in your income over the next five years, but you get 3% more free time every year. The other really important thing is, if we are going to get serious in this country or on this continent about climate change, Canada and the US will have to reduce their carbon emissions. And it's virtually impossible to do that under the current technological configuration without doing something about how fast the economy is growing, and that means addressing hours of work. Uh, new research I've done shows that countries who have shorter hours of work have much lower carbon footprints, they have lower carbon emissions, and they have lower ecological footprints. So working hours turn out to be a, a, a very overlooked but essential aspect of any response to climate change. And that may be, in the end, the most important reason for us to look at work time reductions. That's very interesting that you bring up the point of culture being a very key point to energy consumption. Could you talk a little bit about what the culture is like and what you learned about from living in the Netherlands and you know how environmentalism is is it different than it is in the United States? Is, do you see any comparisons? Yeah, you know, I lived in the Netherlands because I, I did grad work at the University of Amsterdam. And I really enjoyed uh, living there. And, and the Netherlands, by no means, is a perfect model. I mean, they have their own problems, uh, such as uh, nitrogen runoff and fertilizer runoff and things like that from their agricultural system that's among the worst in the European Union. But they're doing a lot of things right. And it's really an engaging place to live. I highly recommend it for anyone that gets the chance. I really enjoyed it. And they have a lot of walkable and bikeable neighborhoods. Dutch cities are relatively compact, which means that you can get around pretty much anywhere you need to by walking and certainly by biking, which is wildly popular in the Netherlands. They have dedicated bike lanes throughout all of the cities, and all of those are then connected by rail and bus transit to other cities within the surrounding areas around cities. And so when you combine that with traffic calming and kind of taxes on fuel and automobiles, you end up with cities that are quiet, that are really clean, that are really fun to live in and walk around. And it's a great place to live and it's a great kind of model to think about uh, for our cities because they're a lot of fun and they're uh, enjoyable to be in, but they're also very energy efficient. 
in wrapping up, we're starting to think about the next generation of environmentalists. And so what should they be learning in school? Like, should it be about lead buildings and how to build lead buildings everywhere? Or is, should it be something else? I think this is a, a point that I would like to engage with a lot. It's this idea of what is an environmentalist and what are environmentalists of the future going to be engaged with? And right now, it is very much this idea of, like you bring up, lead building. So a lead is a point system that architects use and building designers use and urban planners use in order to say how environmentally friendly a certain structure is. And they get points in the lead system for high-tech add-ons, things like solar cells and electric car charging stations and things like that. But I would argue that actually in the future, LEED would have a lot larger impact if they based their construction metrics on actual energy performance of the building, not on the technological add-ons or the little checklist of niceties uh, that people might like to associate with in environmental meaning, but actually the cold and hard facts of how much energy the building actually uses. And I think on a broader scale, for environmentalists of the future, they're going to be thinking about the things that we've been talking about here, which is uh, ideas of governance, ideas of thinking about congruency in policy design. And by congruency, I mean ideas that have a potential to take hold because they speak to people's interests. They're not an idea of sacrifice. They're not telling people to consume less. I mean, that has been the tedious PowerPoint presentation of the environmental movement for decades, and it has been a dismal failure because people don't want to use less. They don't want to sacrifice. So we have to find ways in which we can create contexts that people will want to or choose to live in the lower energy-intensive economy because they want to, they see benefits from doing so. And another area for future environmentalists will be healthcare, like we said, and human rights. Uh, these will be necessary, not only uh, from the standpoint of reducing energy use, but also if the effects of climate change come to bear, uh, as climatologists are expecting, then human rights will be a central feature in a society of dealing with the challenges that we'll face globally from those kinds of breakdowns. So what kind of classes should I be taking in oh, my boy. university if I'm thinking of <laughs> you know, being an environmentalist? It seems like it's a lot of different, very broad areas that I could go into. You know, I think that you can be an environmentalist in a lot of different areas. If you're an economist, you might want to think about uh, shifting classes to critical economy and thinking about uh, economics that are maybe off of the mainstream and challenging the field of economics, because I think that's where you'll start to see some benefits or where you can make an, an impact on shifting the situation. And if you are interested in biology and things like that, then maybe healthcare or some kind of field like that would be of interest. So I think that people can follow their interests and do what they want to do and still be environmentalists at the same time. If they kind of have that in the back of their head, if they kind of have in their mind the idea of how their work is going to end up producing contexts where people can use less energy over the long term, then that will definitely have a beneficial environmental impact. And so you can, like you said, it seems like there's a lot of different fields that people could end up uh, being in. And in fact, for me, it was architecture, but it could be almost anything for anyone else. So last question here. We've talked all about different kinds of energy that can be used all across the globe and all the benefits and all the downsides of energy. From your perspective, from your research, do you believe that energy is a human right that should be available to everybody in the whole world? Or is it just something that is only for a, a select few, a, a, uh, an elite of humanity? Well, 
this is, I think, uh, going to be a large portion of my research as I go on and into the future of my work, because it's something that concerns me a lot, this idea that especially uh, we see that when there's this jousting back and forth between, say, China and the United States, between the, the United States saying, oh, well, you have, you have a lot of people and you use a lot of energy and, and maybe you should use a little bit less of it. But in the United States, we have a, a populace that uses energy somewhere five to eight times more per capita than they, they use in China. So we're not really in a position to preach. And I think that energy should be something that we expand access to to people worldwide. And in the correct contexts where populations are allowed access to health care and uh, women have uh, rights over their reproduction and in areas where the policy is created with congruence so that uh, people's interests are aligned toward uh, a lesser energy-intensive society, then energy can bring fantastic benefits, even if it is produced using fossil fuels, to people throughout the world. Because energy is, is a central part to the way we live and to the way a lot of other people would like to live. None of us can blame anyone who lives in the developing world for wanting more energy. I mean, why wouldn't they? I mean, we often think about there's billions of people out there that are using lots of energy, but we're each one of those billions as well. Uh, in the developed world, we use a lot more than everyone else. So maybe it's time to start thinking about those inequities in energy use. So is alternative energy even important to our future at all? I think it will be important over the long term because over the long term, that's all there's going to be left is alternative energy uh, because of the fossil fuel uh, one by one, they will start to become uh, more scarce. We will not run out of them, but they will become more and more expensive. So alternative energies will be part of the story. But in order to make them relevant as soon as possible, we're going to have to reduce globally the amount of energy that we actually use, because that's going to be the easier way to make them more relevant. We really have to ask, it, it might be possible to mine a lot of minerals and create a lot of biofuels to create even more and more energy. But we really have to ask, is that what we'd prefer to leave to future generations, some kind of a future world filled with strip mines and plantations? And, you know, what's possible is not always what is preferable. And we'll have to think about going on in the future, what that means, where we see the solutions and what they would be. Just like a stranger And that closes out our conversation with Ozzy Zener about green illusions, about his work on redefining what it means to be an environmentalist. And this is one of a few conversations that we have coming up with Michael McGonigal, as you could hear part of it on the Radio EcoShock show, as well as Paul Kingsnorth about some of the cultural aspects of redefining environmentalism. And I think at this time, 
in the movement's history, it's really important to look back and think critically about what it has accomplished and what it really means to quote unquote care about the environment because there's so many different approaches that can be readapted into something that can have a much bigger impact than what the movement has had before. And so in this episode, we've been talking about renewable energy technologies. And so much of the last decade or so for environmentalists has been about focusing on renewable energy for many of them. And I've been involved in many um, environmental actions and discussions about the advantages of renewable energy. But as Ozzy was just telling us, one of the biggest challenges is that renewable energy has a footprint itself. And so, Seth, I'm wondering about what it's like when you talk to people about energy issues. Do you find that generally they're just saying, oh, well, don't worry, we've got solar power that can help save us from peak oil? They'll bring up solar panels. They'll say, oh, don't worry, we have these wind turbines that are going to take care of all the energy needs. We don't really have to worry about these energy needs. But in reality, these energy sources that are going to, in the people, some people's minds, re- replace oil will not be able to take the place of oil. And even if they are you know, able to take a part of the energy supply demand off of oil, there's still going to be a high demand of oil for themselves. And they are really not sustainable. And it's really difficult for people to understand the fact that that solar energy is not going to take the place of oil. It's, it's just not going to happen. I'm wondering, Justin, do you think there's going to be, emerge some kind of technology, some kind of green technology or otherwise that's going to replace oil when we really, really need it? Yeah, this is a big debate in a lot of economist circles on finding alternatives to oil. And at least from my own experience, the barriers towards scaling up renewable energy on a a large basis are just too great for it to be able to offset the demands of traditional energy infrastructure for fossil fuel-based resources. And the reason I'm saying that is because some of my research is on the scarce elements that are involved in the solar cell and solar photovoltaic production process. And even though it's not a big issue right now, because solar panels and electricity generated from solar photovoltaics is such a small portion of what's in the electricity grid, if these solar photovoltaic technologies were actually scaled up, it would present some tremendous challenges to these rare earth elements and some of the most efficient technologies like cadmium telluride. Ozzy Zenner was mentioning in the episode that some of the efficiency gains that you can find through generating electricity from photovoltaics come from using you know, rare, rare earth elements. And he's right. Some of the most cost-effective methods of photovoltaic energy generation come from cadmium telluride, copper, indium, gallium, diselenide technologies, which all use rare earth elements like indium and tellurium. And so even though there's only a small amount of those materials that are used in those cells, or in those photovoltaic modules, if you start scaling up, it really has a very big impact. If you start talking about the size of a coal plant made out of cadmium telluride solar photovoltaics. And if you look at all of the electricity that's generated around the world, there's about 12 billion kilowatt hours generated by solar photovoltaics, but that only amounts to 0.062% of annual global electricity output. 0.062. Yeah, 0.062. That's a tiny number. Yeah, so it's really, really tiny at the moment. And so... You think about all that sun that is is coming down on the planet and how much how small amount of of that energy that we're actually capturing. It's mind-boggling, you know? 
yeah, it's it's really shocking to think that all of the solar energy is coming down on the planet, but all of that's being harvested by plants. It's being harvested by other ways, and converting it into electricity may not be the smartest approach for the future. So we need to find something other than electricity. Maybe we can run everything on carbon dioxide. I know there's plenty of that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's quite a <laughs> bit of carbon dioxide. That's yeah, especially sure. from us talking. I mean, we generate probably a good supply on our own. Yeah, just but, the Skype conversations generating tons of CO2 from the energy it takes up. And it's it's a real shame that you know we haven't really investigated these energies as fully as we probably could because of the fact that we have oil that's so abundant and there's not really a reason to in a lot of people's minds because why invest all this money into an energy source when you have oil that sits sitting in the ground ready to go? You'd have to develop all this solar technology and you'd have to reformat the infrastructure and that would be lots and lots of money and you know the power structure is not really ready for that kind of stuff yet. Yeah, it, it takes a tremendous amount of financial resources to convert the infrastructure over to something that could run off of uh, renewable energy generation technologies. And um, even though I was talking about solar PV electricity generation, there's you know wind turbines that are also variable. And Germany right now is the country in the world that is making the most concerted policy efforts in moving its electricity grid over to renewable energy generation. And what they're finding is that it's putting more and more strains on their grid operations. And in fact, 23% of the operating hours last year required interventions from their power operations staff to ensure that there weren't uh, grid failures. And that's not a huge problem, but it was a tremendous increase in the amount of interventions that were required previously. And that number shot up so much simply because they're installing so much renewable energy on their grid. And the variability of wind and solar introduces an extreme level of complexity into the grid operations. And so when you're talking about a few percent of your grid containing solar or wind generation or any kind of intermittent generation technology, it's not a big problem. But when you're starting to talk like several coal plants or several nuclear plants uh, worth of solar or wind, it becomes a very serious issue. And there's just not the kind of storage technologies that are cost effective on a large scale to be able to absorb some of that. And so for a lot of people who turn to renewable energy technologies and say, you know, this is our future, it is our future to some extent. Even though we've been talking with Ozzy and he's been pointing out their shortcomings, that's not to say that we just shouldn't build solar panels or wind turbines. What they're useful for our smaller community scale generation of electricity and changing that energy infrastructure on a very small scale. And they're also useful in decentralized uh, electricity applications. Some of the first solar panels that were ever used were in telecommunications technologies because the boxes that line operators had to maintain were really far away and required a lot of time to get to. And so making sure that they had um, either electricity that could get out there or even electricity for sensor information that could report back was some of the first uses for photovoltaic technologies. And so solar photovoltaics and wind turbines are going to be extremely important in the future as these fossil fuel resources dwindle, but they are not a replacement. And that's really the most important aspect of what Ozzy was talking about. This is not just simply a, we're changing an energy source. What 
he's saying that environmentalists of the future are going to need to do is change the context that these technologies are operating in. We need to do away with these, uh, you know, inefficient suburban tract homes that were mass built because just throwing solar panels on the top of them doesn't fix the fact that they shouldn't have been built in the first place. And we need to, you know, reduce the automobile dependence of our infrastructure. And we need to change the modes of society in which we operate. And we heard from Juliet Shore in one of our breaks and we heard Ozzy talking about Juliet Shore and her idea of the work spend cycle and, you know, reducing the amount of money that we send through society. And that's a really hard thing for a lot of people to grasp that it's not just a simple technical solution, that it really is a social adaptation. I really like the thing that Julia Shore said about instead of getting a 3% raise every year, we just get a 3% vacation bonus every year. So by the time you're, you're like 65, ready to retire, you're working 15% of the time and, and, 70, and 85% of the time you are on vacation. I thought that was a pretty wild idea. Yeah, I wonder if there's a certain cultural barrier in the United States that would prevent something like that from ever happening. Because if you tell people in the U.S. that, you know, we need to start working less, that goes against so many of the core cultural oh, values yeah. oh, that yeah, Morris Berman talked about. People love to work. You take somebody's job away from them, it's pretty much taking their whole identity in this country. In a lot of ways, people live to work instead of working to live which is a real backwards way of thinking about working. And you, you get so caught up in your education that prepares you for your job. And when you have that job, it's, it's almost like becomes your whole world, you know? You go to work every single day where you spend eight hours plus a day and then you go home and you're like, oh, I can't even think about anything else because I've been working all day. And then you only have two days off at the end of the week. Jobs become your entire life, and if you separate yourself from that job just a little bit, it can really set people adrift in a lot of ways. What are you talking about eight hours a day? I was just talking with my friend Tim in New York, and he has a friend who eats 80% of all of his meals at his desk, breakfast, wow. lunch, and dinner. He works more than 12 hours a day on an average basis. Yeah. And he literally will sleep all night at the office two or three nights a week and then go in and, uh, you know, just wake up and get some breakfast and sit at his desk and work. Especially for people who don't have families or, you know, have, have very limited connections with other people, work can be a very all-consuming thing. And you can, you can fall into that trap very easily, if, especially if you enjoy your work. You can just spend your whole day and your whole life just sitting at your desk staring at computer screens. You know, I, I stare a lot at computer screens myself, but there's some, you have to just be able to shut it off. You have to be able to get away. And the quality of life that you have sitting at a computer screen just doesn't compare to that of sitting with your friends or enjoying a meal or something like that, you know? Yeah, or talking with your family and friends. And I, I think it's important that especially the environmental movement here in North America starts really dealing with engaging on how we can live differently. And that's the topic of some of our future discussions, so we won't dive into that too much. But I also like how Ozzy mentioned wind power historically with windmills and also transportation, zeppelins, hot air balloons. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, I know you have a soft spot for zeppelins, and I know you would like to own one one day. And, you know, it might, it might come true. The extra environmentalists one day might be on a traveling tour around the country riding on a zeppelin. Yeah, you know, when you think about the future of air transportation— and clearly the massive amount of steel that it takes to fly 
uh, Boeing 747 across a continent or an ocean, it, so much energy is involved in that process. And every single time that I'm in a plane and it takes off, I'm just like in awe that it can even happen because I think of all those complex energy flows just to make that one single flight happen. It's unbelievable. And so knowing what we know about peak oil and energy issues in the future, the need for air travel is not going to go away. But the ability to do it with planes and airlines is going to And the to go cost away. of it is going to skyrocket. When yeah. you have when your inputs are not as cheap as they are now, your the plane tickets are going to be astronomically high. And basically only extremely rich people are going to be able to, able to travel. Instead of us lowly, you know, middle classers who can jump on a plane and fly to anywhere we want. Right. So that's why I hope that in a few years, Seth and I can launch the first <laughs> new Zeppelin company here in North America, the Extra Environmentalist Zeppelins, and we will enable air travel for the masses. Sure, it'll take a little bit longer than going by jumbo jet, but if you want to hop on our Zeppelin, we'll charge you a reasonable price. Right. A reasonable price. Reasonable price. Reasonable. It won't be full of hot air, but <laughs> sorry. Going back to renewable energy, I just want to say that I think that the story of renewable energy is just a sad, sad story of something that could have had a tremendous impact if we'd been serious as a civilization about our energy future back 30 or 40 years ago. And we really could be running a large portion of our grid and our society on these renewable technologies because a lot of the grid issues and a lot of the infrastructure that we've built that have moved us away from having a renewable energy society wouldn't have been built. It would have been built with these technologies in mind. And so it's just really sad and really unfortunate. And, you know, we don't just want to sit around and bash these technologies because we think they should be bashed. We're sitting around and just talking about them realistically. And, you know, that's a really sad thing. I just wanted to throw out a few more numbers um, for my own research. So if you look at the amount of solar photovoltaics that have been installed worldwide, it's about 62 gigawatts at the end of 2011. And a uh, typical coal plant, not the largest coal plant, but, uh, you know, medium-sized uh, coal plant is about 2 gigawatts. And so globally, that 62 gigawatts is only equivalent to 31 coal plants. Wow, only 31 coal plants in the entire world? Yeah, so all of the solar photovoltaics in the whole world. And the majority of that photovoltaic capacity is in Germany and also the rest of Europe. I bet there's only a very, very tiny bit that's in developing countries as well, right? Yeah, and, and the main reason for that is because it's a very costly uh, technology relative to other forms of generating electricity um, sure. For yeah, especially developing when, nations, especially when developing nations have you know resources in the ground that they could just dig up and burn, you know. Yeah, and renewable energy technologies like uh, solar and, and wind are subject to the same credit crunch, the same debt supercycle that we've talked about with Nicole Foss and Steve Keen, and so many solar companies have been going bankrupt recently, and one of the uh, biggest ones in China, LDK Solar is on the verge of bankruptcy because they've taken on so much debt. So just because the electricity may be generated by sunlight or wind, that doesn't mean that it's not subject to debt in the same way that the rest of our economy is, which is really unfortunate. So, But what's not unfortunate, Justin, is the amount of listener support we have been getting here at the Extra Environmentalist, which has been phenomenal, to put it shortly. 
We've been hearing from so many people who have just been excited to hear about the podcast and about our new videos that have just been popping up all over Vimeo. We've got an incredible amount of, of sharing going on on all different websites. And it's just, it's just really exciting stuff going on over here. Yeah, our, our Facebook page has really been picking up in the, number, in the number of people who have been liking it. And I wanted to send a thanks to Lee from Prince Rupert, BC, for being our 450th Facebook like. That's really, Yay. yeah, that's really a milestone for us. And it's really exciting to have uh, someone from BC and someone I actually know from BC being that 450th like. So thanks so much, Lee. That's right. Thanks so much, Lee. It's great to have you on board. Uh, we've also been getting a lot of donations coming in from our uh, PayPal account. We have a, a donation that came in from David in, in Mount Wolf, Pennsylvania which we're very glad to have. Thank you so much, David. And we also got a donation from John in Tampa, Florida. So hope you are avoiding the zombies. Down yeah, there. those zombies are, are pretty crazy down there. Yeah. And we also got a donation from Greg in Australia. Thanks, Greg. Really appreciate your support. It's really great to hear from you all the way out there in Australia. So all these donations were over the $10 limit that we had talked about last week, so they will all be receiving stickers. If you are one of these people and would like us to send you some stickers, send us an address if it's different from the one on your PayPal, and we will send you out some stickers. And because of all the donations that we've been getting well over the $10 mark for sticker shipping, what we're going to do is use that to fund sending stickers out to all of our past donators. And once we've sent stickers out to all of our previous patrons, we're going to start opening it up so that if you just want to be on a standing list for stickers, we'll put you on there. And as people send in donations, it'll start spreading that wealth, that sticker wealth out to the entire world. That's right. And all we ask for you to do is really to put them in a prominent place or in a place that's really special to you and take a picture. Send it to us. We'd love yeah. to see it. Yeah, exactly. And, and Greg, who left a donation, he also left a voicemail. Hi, guys. This is Greg Collin from Australia. I wanted to let you know that I thought your Steve Keen interview was excellent. But one thing that stuck out for me was not actually something he said, but your commentary at the end where you noted that things look so normal in the U.S., so it's hard to talk to anybody about the real problems that are stewing into the surface. I live in Australia, but took a trip to the U.S. this last winter, and I was amazed at how normal and how rich everything still looked. The malls were full, the cars were shiny. No wonder the real issues don't get much traction with people. I couldn't even see a hint of a problem. So it made me doubt, sure, all this analysis logic and data is great, but if reality isn't matching now, maybe our ideas aren't right. I mean, these problems seem huge. Shouldn't they be peeking through the surface to reality by now? I couldn't see it, and it started me doubting my worldview. So I'm wondering if you'd talk more about the apparent mismatch with reality. Thanks for the show, and I've sent a donation to show my support and encourage everybody else listening to do the same. Thanks, guys. That's right, Greg. It does seem like there's nothing going on. We hear on the media and we hear from all of our politicians that it's just business as normal and we shouldn't worry about it. But here on The Extra Environmentalist, we know a little bit different, don't we? We hear from all these experts. and Yeah, but you're hitting on a really core and important point, Greg, in that things in the U.S. do kind of seem normal. And so there's a few reasons for that. One of them is because of what Jared Diamond talks about, and that's creeping normalcy, and that you don't really see your surroundings change because you're in your surroundings. 
and that's the case for a lot of people in the U.S. But what you're talking about is actually something different. You're coming from Australia to the U.S. and saying, "Wow, things are still so normal here," and that really hits on a core point that we addressed with Moore Sperman, and that's about the core versus the periphery in terms of corporate capitalism. And the United States is the core of the philosophy and the mechanisms that enable the global capitalist model to perpetuate. And because of that, the change is going to manifest a lot faster in the periphery instead of the core. And so that's why the U.S., even though it experienced the housing crisis that turned into a financial crash from 2006 to 2008, had so many issues. But because it has adapted and created this system of corporate capitalism, it is very well adapted. To papering over the issues, it doesn't have the same kind of political challenges that the eurozone has in dealing with its crisis, because it just has a Federal Reserve that can, with very little scrutiny comparatively, print money, paper over the issues, and pretend that things are still normal for the most part. And yeah, because quite it's so, literally paper over the situation, yeah, quite <laughs> literally paper over the situation. And so in the U.S. It's very easy through control of media. It's very easy through control of the money system in the means that they have uh, to perpetuate the feeling of normalcy. And in fact, it used to be that that China owned the most U.S. debt, but that's no longer the case. It's actually the Federal Reserve that owns the most U.S. debt, and that's a big shift that's happened over the last few years. And you know, can it really continue? I really don't think it can continue. But we've heard from some of our other listeners who, you know, have written in and said, you know, what if this just keeps perpetuating out for a really long time? And there's that possibility. There really is that possibility that the rest of the world could be going through this massive、uh, revolution, and the U.S. just still remains roughly the same, just kind of slowly decaying away. But I really feel like right now we're at this point where global financial markets are so unstable. And so jittery because of what's happening in the eurozone and because of what's happening in Asia, that things are really on the verge of changing dramatically inside the United States on a macro scale. But that doesn't mean that in communities and in regions things can't change in a positive way. I really think they can. Yeah, and it's hard to tell when that papering over is just going to stop. There's not really much of a way to tell. Yeah, there's not really much of a way to tell. And even though the fundamentals aren't sound and they've got to go away eventually. Um, it's going to take a long time for all that power to be relinquished, and I really think that、um, you know people like Nicole Foss talk about the deflationary issues in the world, and in a lot of ways, as long as you have money, things may seem normal, because as long as you have that job and that flow of money that's coming in. There's still going to be a market, and it's still going to provide you with things. And while there's a good likelihood of you know commercial shortages and and、um, you know other market disruptions, if you still have that money flow, things may seem somewhat normal. Yeah, people、um, still need to get groceries. They still need to drive their cars places. They still need to do all the things that they need for survival. And those things are not going to change at the drop of a hat. Those things are going to keep on going as long as they're available. To keep going, but what's really crazy is all of the potential for bank runs here in the new near future. Not necessarily in the U.S. and Canada, but especially across Europe, and that is a huge shock to business as usual and a huge shock to normalcy. And so, you know, while there certainly is a tendency for society to gravitate towards some form of,、uh, you know, making sure that our market system works, and that's why we've had it for so long because it's 
uh, driven people to do that, we're really on the verge of some major market disruptions. So thanks for that great voicemail, Greg. We really appreciate it. And also thank you for your donation. Hey, guys. It's quasi-periodic. Degrowth conference. That's perfect. I love that. At the same time, I'm listening to this audiobook breakthrough from the death environmentalism to politics of possibility. So amazing. It turns environmentalism into a hopeful thing and, crit- and does this amazing critique of the whole we're all going to die thing that I had to, you know, grow out of myself. So that that's my concern about the degrowth conferences, the attitude that we need to stop humans from being the awesome fountains of possibility that they are and that we just need to restrain them is not concurrent with the flow of humanity because humanity is a fountain of possibility. I had another idea I wanted to share with y'all. I think I got this from another podcast. I think it was the Two Years of Steve podcast. He was interviewing a comedian who wanted to point out that the two parties in America are really just social clubs. And that's done a great deal for my thinking and no longer taking those guys seriously. I think it would be great if we could do this. If we could, if that idea could transmit, as I started thinking of them as Democratic and Republican parties and started thinking of them as the Democratic Social Club and the Republican Social Club, like, oh, those guys are just guys. They're not in the Constitution. It's the Cool Kids Club over hundreds of years, but they're really not cool kids. All right, much love. Bye. And that was the most recent report from our farm equipment correspondent, Quasi Periodic. We really appreciate those continued reports. And in this one, Quasi Periodic, you were mentioning degrowth and how there's definitely concern that it's too much of the same old environmental doom that came from previous environmental movements. And I think that is one of the things that actually draws me towards the degrowth movement is that it's not just uh, environmental doom. It's understanding the environmental problems that we're facing in the world today, but it's also two core things. It's about a collective understanding of limits in that there are some things that we shouldn't grow and there are some things that we should grow. And then the other thing is that it's really about the joie de vivre. It's about the joy of life. It's about finding those things that are important in your life and growing those things and making them the core. And so it's really about social adaptation and social adaptation towards meaningful, important things like hanging out with friends and family and building meaningful relationships and finding uh, a work culture that is humanistic and really centered around the human as opposed to the work itself. That's right, quasi-periodic. You know a lot about growing things and a lot about being happy because you're growing things all the time. So that is a great message from you, and we really we really appreciate your your input on this on this subject. Another thing you were talking about is the political parties as social clubs, which is a really interesting topic to think about. These parties are really just the two sides of an A. I like to think about it as like an A-frame house that just keep each other up and support each other. And yeah, one you've hit dis- on this before. I have, I have, I've talked about this before, and I, I like the way that Quasi Periodic talks about it. As, as just like a social club. If you think about these parties as not uh, ruling uh, elites, but as just people that are part of a club that just talk to each other and hang out, you can see the way that these systems are put together in a lot clearer light. They really are social clubs, and it's just a bunch of people inside these social clubs jockeying for a position. And for some reason, these social clubs also run the United States and a lot of the world's economy, which is really unfortunate because it's like all of these people have to compete 
on saying how extreme and crazy they are and then pretend like that didn't exist when it comes time to be elected by the main population. So Yeah, but the then whole, the, whole pop, the whole public buys into it and they say, hey, I, I like this guy because he's the coolest and he said that thing the best, so I'm going to vote yeah. for him. All the primaries are just competitions to see who is the most out of touch with reality. And, <laughs> and that's really what it's about is it's like, hey, I'm even more out of touch with reality than these other people, so you should really vote for me. And then when it comes time... For the main election, you have to convince everybody that you're out of touch with reality just enough that you're electable, that you can get into the main office. So, you know, that's what it's become. We love politics on this show because they're just so much fun to talk about. And <laughs> we appreciate it once again, Quasi, for uh, bringing that up for us to give our two cents on. Thanks again to all of our listeners. If you want to hear more of The Extra Environmentalist, you can always come to our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. You can check out our Facebook page, which has just been blowing up like crazy, thanks to our new video page, which is over at vimeo.com slash extraenvironmentalist. Our blog is doing really great. And special thanks to Ashley for her guest post on the blog, which is just fantastic. We really welcome guest posts, and we, we thank her so much for her, her hard work on that. Find us on Twitter. Our handle is xenvironmental. Leave us a voicemail. Find us on Skype. And, you know, if you really like the show and it's meaning a lot to you and you, and you find that you can't get by without the extraenvironmentalist at least once in your day, send us a PayPal donation over at our website. But by no means should you feel obligated to donate. We are producing this content as a gift to the world, and that is really our goal, is to make this knowledge and information available and to have these meaningful discussions and provide all of you out there with the psychological energy to have these discussions with people in your lives. And so that's what we really hope to do. So please do not feel obligated to donate. But we really appreciate Greg uh, shouting out and saying that you know he thinks other people should donate as well. And the fact that people would send their money to us is just unbelievable and really overwhelming, so thank you. But if people do donate, they get stickers, they get bonus content, we wanna make sure that the exchange goes both ways. If you're gonna give us money, we're gonna send you some stickers and we're gonna send you some awesome bonus content. And don't worry, just because we are moving into video, that does not mean that we are going to be neglecting audio production at the least. We've actually got way more exciting things coming up in the audio pipeline than we even could imagine initially, that's for sure. Or but we can even handle. We have so <laughs> many interviews that just need to be edited and put out there for everybody. Yeah. We're working on that, though. We're working on that. And actually, the Sustainable Guidance YouTube channel and the team behind that is now joining up with us for production and editing assistance on some of these episodes. And so we're going to be able to edit and fly through these interviews we've been doing even faster in getting them out to you because there's just been too big of a delay between the recording time of the interview and when it actually comes out. And so thanks again to the Sustainable Guidance YouTube channel. Really check that out on YouTube. Incredible videos on the tar sands and other environmental issues. And so a big thanks to Sustainable Guidance. That's right. And if you feel like you too would like to partner with the Extra Environmentalists in any way that you could think of, if you are, have a background in marketing, if you like to write for a blog or you know any kind of newspaper or anything like that, we can use your talents there. If you're a researcher, if you're if you're into making videos, if you're into editing audio, anything like that, we can use your skills here at the Extra Environmentalists and you can make a difference with all these different issues that are really affecting people everywhere. Our production team is constantly open for contributions. So 
please just let us know if you have a few hours a month and you'd like to help out in some way. So once again, from the Extra Environmentalists, we really appreciate you listening and have a lovely, great day. Enjoy the sunshine and try to stay under the beach umbrella. If possible. given importance to technology, better instruments of war, better communication, and so on. I won't go into all that, we'll probably all know about it. So man has given time, energy, money, his capacities towards that improvement of technology. So his consciousness has moved towards greater technology. He's given his thought, his energy in that direction. Our brains are becoming more and more technologically minded, gadgets. We're not saying you shouldn't have that, we are saying that it's inevitable. That's what's happened. And man has given very little time, energy, thought in any other direction. He doesn't say, I am going to find out for myself, what I am, why I behave like this, what is beyond all this in my... We haven't given a thought to it. You understand the two? That is, man has given enormous time and energy towards the conquering of environments, which is sky, heaven, and the world. And we have not given that equal energy or time or vitality to inquire within ourselves what we are, why we behave like this. Is there any existence without cause, which is the inquiry of something far greater than all technology, all human thought? You see the picture? Technology is invading our whole consciousness, and we are not giving enough energy and time to the other. And if there are few who do, they are submerged by the other. If all of us who are listening here give time, energy to the inquiry of something beyond all this, then we are adding to that consciousness something which is not technological world at all. Suppose you give your time, energy, your capacities, to real inquiry, not accepting belief and all that childish stuff, but deeply inquiry. Inquiry is different from analysis. Inquiry is to observe, 
and pursue that observation. So when one human being does this, you may add to the whole human consciousness a certain quality to it, and that quality is soon destroyed or submerged or diminished by the other. But if there were thousand people who were concerned with this, not forming a group and all that kind of silly stuff, but actually giving your whole life to this, then you, you are adding to that consciousness, of, to the human consciousness, a quality of something beyond all words, beyond all thought, beyond all conclusions, which is something eternal. Hawaiian slack key guitarist Makana. So I unbuttoned my shirt at some point, my jacket, and I revealed Occupy with Aloha. And I quietly went into the song and I played it straight through, and my heart was racing, and I didn't get kicked out. And I had reactions from some of the world leaders. And fortunately, Obama, who was in charge of the dinner, you know, he was the host, was busy talking. And if he had been listening, I think that he would have signaled to his people to have me stop. But because him and his wife were busy engaged in conversation, and the other tables were kind of just sitting there, I was able to play it. And so I went back into some instrumentals and finally I decided I got a lot of courage and I decided to play it again and I went into a really long version and I just kept playing and switching verses and doing the choruses and I played it for about wow. 40 minutes and it, <laughs> wow. was, it was it was it was a I mean for those of you who haven't heard the song you know it's lyrics like from underneath the vestiture of law the lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty the bureaucrats guffaw and until they are purged we won't withdraw the 2012 Austerity Games in Sudan, Africa. This is Brian Bryanson and Steve Stevenson. Hi, I'm Steve Stevenson. I'm Brian Bryanson. I'm the past winner of the Austerity Bank Run Games. Yeah, yeah, Brian. Can you take me back to that one time that uh, you were making that 300-meter dash right to the ATM and one of those guys tried to shove you out of the way and... I just remember this this classic replay where you just reached right in there, typed in your PIN number, and you got that money out of the bank right before it failed. It was incredible. Oh, man. Oh, man. You know it, Steve. It, it set the world record in, in 400-meter dash to an ATM. It was incredible. So oh, my we're gonna, gosh. Yeah, so we're going to take you to our first event for today's broadcast this afternoon, and it's fencing. That's right, Steve. Participants are going to be putting up fences around protesters. 
This is pulled directly out of the Occupy movement in New York. All right, we're going to take you live to Carol Carlson, who's on the ground right now at the fencing event, which is already underway. Yes, thank you so much, Brian. It's been absolutely shocking to see this new event underway. The International Austerity Olympics Committee really thought this was an important addition to the Games with so many competitors who have been arising in this field in the last year. And uh, they're starting right now. It looks like the competitor from the United States who qualified for these Austerity Olympic Games, uh, he's putting a fence right around these thousands and thousands of occupiers. And Carol, tell us what's going on on the ground. What's, what's happening? I hear, I hear all kinds of noise. Yes, well, it looks like China is now moving into the competition, and they're doing incredibly well. Oh, it looks like they're setting a new world record in fencing. It's incredible. Wow, this is, sounds exciting. Let's cut away from this event. That's right, Brian. It looks like it's time for the pole vault over hordes of cannibals. And uh, this is a really incredible one. Uh, I'm actually going to be commentating this one live here. It looks like the athlete from France is getting ready to, to pole vault over these cannibals. Oh, and, and he does it. Look at that twist. He's doing it with quantitative ease. It's incredible. All right. It looks like next up, one of the events that's getting ready to start is a Molotov cocktail toss. This you know, Steve, this one. is my favorite event. You know, when they light those bottles on fire, I just can feel the energy just pulsing out of those bottles. The Olympic Games that are about to occur in London, while well, their actual image is the torch, for the Austerity Olympic Games, our image is the Molotov cocktail. And we light a Molotov cocktail and run it all through war-torn countries all around the world. If we could show one person the power of a Molotov cocktail in the hand of a teenager, I think we've done our job. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're going to take you live to some of that Molotov uh, cocktail run right here. Yeah, so Brian, we're, we're here in the South Sudan, and it's incredible. This has been the greenest austerity Olympic Games that have ever uh, occurred. Tons of LEED-certified gentrification has been built here in the South Sudan, and it's really matching the standards of the finest green building construction that the Sudan has ever seen. It's really incredible. So thank you to the International Austerity Olympic Committee for making sure that these are the greenest games ever. Now, for my favorite, favorite event, it's coming right up, the bank run part of the Olympic Games and this is just you know my favorite part when all these candidates line up they run 400 meters they jump onto that ATM you know there's all those obstacles that are just gonna jump out at them and it's gonna be real tough so yeah that's right Brian we're gonna toss it over to Sarah Sarenson down on the ground and here's the gun and they're up and they're spinning off to, to a fast start fast start Greece sliding in behind them right behind them is uh Spain coming right up right coming right up oh oh cool they're gonna spray with pepper spray oh it's just like Greece is getting sprayed with pepper spray real hard oh they think he's down Spain is on his way Spain is on his way look at Phil look at Phil he's making his answer oh my goodness oh my goodness We'll come back to you later, Sarah, for the awarding of, of medals, gold bullion. So we'll see how it goes towards the end. Up next, we've got kicking the can down the road. This is one of the most classic austerity Olympic games. Uh, and today's competitors are the US, France, and China, all kicking the can down the road to see who wins the gold bar here. That's right, Steve. And uh, you know, who's the favorite here is always the United States because they are, you know, the core culture and they're really kicking the can down that road. They have that Federal Reserve, which is amazing at printing money, and they can just uh, kick that can really, really far. Yeah, and they're, and they're really good at leg strength, too. They can really just haul back and kick those cans. We're going to cut live here in studio to the Kicking the Can Down the Road competition. Let's 
Let's see as the U.S. is about to kick it, about to kick it, and oh my God, that is setting holy a world holy. that is setting a world record on kicking the can down the road. It's going to be several years before they even find that one. I don't think it's ever coming down. Right. Sweet cheeses in the basket of babies. All that's left for today's afternoon broadcast here from the Austerity Olympics in the Sudan is some of the award ceremonies, and looks like there's a few countries who have done really incredibly well in the looting triathlon and they're about to get awarded a triple a debt rating that's a, that's one of the biggest honors this game has to offer is the triple yes. a and the the athlete from the uk is up on the podium and clearly it looks like he's very excited to be accepting a triple a debt rating it's definitely something that his country uh, does not feel that they deserve, but they yeah, are really Steve, honored. Can you imagine being that English guy up there right now, just receiving that AAA debt rating, holding it in his hand? He's worked real, real hard for this, you know? Yes. That's going to be all the coverage we can spare at the moment. Be sure to keep watching throughout the week. That's right, Steve, and check back in later for the Bank Run Marathon, which promises to be a very heavy-duty match. You've been watching the Asteria Olympics, brought to you by J.P. Morgan Silver Trading Desk. We'll take you to new heights and shorts.